Hello and welcome to Unofficial Partner, the sports business podcast. I'm Richard Gillis. Match tickets are the point at which new technology meets real life and the results are mixed. Some of the biggest football matches in recent times have been blighted by claims and counterclaims of ticket fraud and technology failures. Most notably at the 2022 UEFA Champions League final between Real Madrid and Liverpool in Paris, the start of which was delayed amid frightening and chaotic scenes outside the Stade de France as thousands of ticket-holding Liverpool fans were stuck outside where police deployed pepper spray and tear gas on supporters holding legitimate tickets. The French government's initial response, at least, was to deflect failures in policing by putting the blame on what it called industrial-scale ticket fraud pointing at similar scenes at UEFA's other showcase event, the Euro 2020 final at Wembley last year, between England and Italy. So, what's gone wrong with the humble match ticket? Has the shift to digital and mobile technology made it easier for the fraudsters? Or is ticketing just an easy scapegoat for other problems? This is a conversation about where we are in the evolution of mobile ticketing in particular, and what it reveals about sports adoption of new technology more generally. Our guests are Mike Bodenek and Chris Miller. Mike is founder and chief executive officer of PTI Digital, an expert in sports stadium and venue delivery with 15 years of experience, including stadium transformations and deployments into more than 30 global sport and entertainment venues. Chris Miller is global business director of StubHub and Viagogo, the largest ticket marketplace in the world. One thing to mention before we start the conversation is the inaugural Unofficial Partner Live event taking place on Wednesday the 21st of September at the Emirates Stadium, home of Arsenal Football Club. Tickets have just gone on sale and you can buy them via the link in the show notes to this podcast. You'll find more detail about the content and format for the evening and keep up to date with guest announcements via the Unofficial Partner newsletter that goes direct to the inbox of thousands of people across sport every Thursday. Sign up via unofficialpartner.com. Fine, I'm just going to make sure that I'm okay. I should put some context on it a bit because this came out of a chat we were having on the unofficial partner whatsapp group which is made up of people who are very senior in sport lots of people who run sports organizations but also agencies and various things and and uh, it was just the mobile ticketing marketplace and trying to work out what's happening where it is because i guess chris can we start with you we should explain first of all who you are and what you do so let's do that let's just get that sorted before we ask any more difficult questions what's, <laughs> of course what, what uh, do you do all day yeah yeah um well so i i was one of the first employees at at Viagogo. so Viagogo is a ticket resale marketplace for live events and so we operate in a number of different countries all over the world we also had recently merged with StubHub in the united states which is operating a similar business model in the ticket resale model although that's evolved quite a lot and so my role is, you know, for lack of a great title, is kind of this business officer, corporate affairs, business development. So responsible for partnerships, responsible for communications, government relations, and some strategy work, trying to stay on the forefront with uh, with different um, sports teams and follow the different developments with respect to the new technologies and things. And that's pretty critical for us to be aware of, of how all the uh, the development of the, of the technology evolves. And you 
And Beagogo and StubHub, they're called different things in different places. So over here in a UK market is Viagogo, yeah? Yeah, that's right. And StubHub in the States. StubHub in the States. So actually the the background is is that one of the first employees at StubHub in the United States that was launched in 2000. It was the pioneer for online ticket resale and, and the, the concept, which hasn't um, you know really shifted too much, was about really delivering a safe and secure marketplace for live event ticket resale. And so if you look at the open market, let's say traditionally this was back you know, prior to 2000 in, in the United States, there was ticket reselling already taking place. It's not an industry that we created. Um, we were just trying to create some more efficiency to it. That was a highly fragmented market that was through ticket sellers on the street or random websites or possibly, you know, lots of um, trading that would take place on eBay and others. And what we would want to try to do is effectively create a more organized marketplace for that. And so we have all sorts of safety and security measures. We organize the website in the fashion that customers can browse through it easily, search for what they were looking for. Um, we hold money in escrow to make sure that there's a, a lot of there's decent incentives, um, incentivize uh, any fraudulent activity, things of that nature. And, and, Fast forward to 2006, we launched Viagogo, which is off the back of the same business model and, and uh, wanted to introduce the service in the United Kingdom. Same types of dynamic that we see in live entertainment in the United States and offered up the opportunity for our service actually with Chelsea and Manchester United Football Clubs and then ultimately rolled out the service at Viagogo outside of the United States throughout the rest of Europe, um, Asia, South America. Okay, right. We'll come back to that in a second. Um, Mike, same question for you. Yeah, so I'm a founder and CEO at PTI Digital. Um, We are a digital transformation consultancy um, working across sport and entertainment. Uh, And our job really is to help uh, stadiums, arenas and and rights holders contextualize how and what they're going to use technology for to doing goals of engagement to drive revenue. Who do you work for? What, who are the clients in that base? Is it right? Is it sports rights holders, event holders, teams? Yeah, right, right across the spectrum. You know, we're working with people like Premiership Rugby at, at a league level, but also six of the clubs uh, working across the Premier League uh, with the likes of Arsenal, Spurs, Man City uh, and a variety of um, and a variety of others. Uh, and then across the sporting spectrum, really uh, cricket, tennis, horse racing, and many more, uh, and then entertainment venues and, and arenas. So before we get into detail, there's a question to both of you. We're going to focus on mobile ticketing ultimately, but just give me a sense of where you think sports, sport is in that relationship. Is it ahead of entertainment and music and other sectors? Chris, this might be one for you to start off with. Or is it lagging behind? Is it What's driving change and where is sport in that sort of relationship? It varies. We would have a perspective in the United States as well as what we see internationally. And, and I can tell you globally, certain markets are further along than others. The UK and the United States, I would say, is probably more progressive in a lot of respects. Outside of that, it, it becomes a little bit more challenging. It just depends on certain territories. But we see certain markets like Korea that are incredibly advanced. My experience is primarily on the ticketing side, and so might yeah. might have a better perspective on on the broader view of technology. But the trends, as it were, for mobile ticketing is significantly on the rise, and it, it's sort of obvious given that the technology itself, in its principle, um, offers a lot more ease of use, and it, and it's a simplified way to 
handle delivery. So if you look at 10, 15 years ago where tickets were printed on hard stock and they had to, you know, post them out in the post. I mean, it's sort of a given that that moving to mobile is an obvious trend, but there's other elements to it that you'll have to uh, have to consider. Uh, and then the other thing, as far as technology is concerned, there's obviously been a lot of talk about blockchain and NFTs. And so music and sport are different, though, I'd say. I mean, sport traditionally has been they've been a little bit more progressive with respect to the use of technology and in our experience, at least, and have been more open minded about the opportunities that that come with it and and music um is slightly different just given the the construct of the industry i mean you have big businesses you know like man united and arsenal which are they've got you know hundreds of millions of fans or whatever the numbers are as opposed to a single band or a single artist that can't really make the same decisions and so they're slightly organized differently through a big promoter or they have to get routed through certain venues so they don't have the same ownership i'd say as, as a sports mm. team does to be able to leverage technology well yeah you make an interesting point there which is not something i've ever really thought about in terms of where the power lies in a music environment is it with the venue then i'm just trying to is that that's it, that, it a that's a long it's a long conversation <laughs> I, mean, I don't want to deviate too far but but the uh you know the the there's that's been a age-old debate for for as long as yeah. i've been doing this which is plus 20 years now and and Look, the content, the artists, the team, that's a the, the, the premium asset for sure. And that's where there's a tremendous amount of value. And, and um, But in music, not every artist is, you know, Justin Bieber or Taylor Swift or Coldplay. And so they don't have the same kind of leverage um, that you would be able to get. And there are a lot of different um, stakeholders in music, much more so than what we see in, see in sport. I'll probably stop okay. there. <laughs> I... I agree. It was a silly question. I said that at the beginning. It was so it was so broad as to be, you know, but actually the mobile ticketing question is quite a nice way into it. It's almost like a proxy into yeah. the bigger thing about its relationship with technology. I think that's what I'm getting at. So, Mike, I've cleared that up. Yeah, no, I think just following on from the from the points there, uh, I would argue that the uh, entertainment side and the arena side is is more mature. Uh, and they're probably more mature for, for two driven reasons. Uh, the first one uh, is that they only see their customers on average 1.2 times a year. So when they come through your doors, you've really got to capitalize and maximize your engagement with them. And hence, if you've got an average basket of four people and you only know one of them and you're a 20,000 seater arena, there's 15,000 people floating around in the ether that you, you don't get to know. Uh, and obviously a digital ticket can play, can play a big role in, in closing some of that gap and driving that addressable audience and, and getting you a, a more personalized relationship with that customer for the short period of time that they're going to be with you with a, with a view of driving spend per head. Um, the second driver, uh, as alluded to there, is that the power in the, in the music industry you know, quite often sits with the promoter. And we've seen a number of promoters across our clients, both arenas and stadiums who host concerts through the summer, having digital ticket mandated to them by the promoter. Uh, who was saying, yeah, our artist wants you to use digital tickets because we don't want uh, we don't want fraud and we want security and we need to do this for, you know, in previous years now for, for COVID reasons or a whole variety of others. So they've had two probably heavier drivers than sports, whereas sports, uh, you know, to your question, uh, I would say, as I would say, everyone is doing something. But the first question, you know, to really clarify here is, is what is a mobile ticket? Uh, for some people, that is an e-ticket sent as a PDF with a barcode on it. For some people, that is a, 
an NFT, uh, NFC ticket uh, and being able to just tap it in your Apple wallet. And for other people, that's ring fencing the ticket into an app uh, so that you can control it and, and grow addressable audiences. So everyone, everybody's somewhere on the journey, as you say, from it's a paper ticket to you need to print it at home as a PDF so you can scan the PDF you've got to it's in our app to it's in your Apple wallet. Uh, and somewhere somewhere on that journey uh, as a piece, but not everyone, uh, I would say maybe uh, 25 to 30% are now sort of digital only within the context of sport compared to probably 80% on the arena side. I'm just wondering about, the, there's an obvious question in sport about the relationship between the club and the fans. Does this make it easier? Is this the route through to that one-to-one relationship that everyone is sort of aspiring to knowing the fan and in a more detailed way is it what data do we give up as part of this transaction and is mobile ticketing helping that process i think it's all about utility and being able to add value to the to the customer's experience be that a fan from a football point of view or a sports point of view or a customer from a from an entertainment point of view uh, and where mobile ticketing is adding value to the consumer is it being a consistent mechanism with that which they're using you know, to get on the train, uh, to travel around, to go through the airports, uh, you know, to make payments in, in, in stores you know, all, all over the place. And then being able to make it easier for me, the ticket purchaser, uh, you know, in, in the days of yesteryear, 10, 15 years ago, I buy four tickets, I get four tickets in the post, I have to stand outside and wait for the other three people to arrive uh, before I can go in and start my experience. Now I can forward them on. Uh, I can I can move them around, and then one person says they can't come, and I can reallocate them, and I can I can move these uh, I can move these pieces around. Um, but I would actually say that sport is arguably lazy as a result of its its depth of relationship with fans, uh, and because people will come uh, regardless necessarily of the experience, you know, those loyal season ticket holders, uh, etc. So there's not been a huge amount of focus uh, on delivering them something else because if they'll come with paper. Uh, or they'll still come with their, their old-fashioned season ticket card and, and put it under the turnstile. Is it a priority for CapEx investment to upgrade the turnstiles? Is it a priority for system investment to put a mobile ticket in? Is it a utility you want to give the fans? Whereas for the arena side, back to the 1.2 average visits per year, they really need to know exactly who's coming to be able to profile them, to put digital personas in place, to customise experience, to personalise, to drive spent ahead on that day. So I think sport's got a little way to go uh, ideologically, philosophically, in, in just the general understanding and treatment of its consumers, um, where music is, is already ahead of that. Chris, do you agree with that? Yeah, I don't disagree. I think it's a they're interesting insights there, and, and and helpful to hear Mike's point of view. The the you know we see for from our business both in the United States, eighty five percent of all of the fulfillment methods are are mobile. And to Mike's point, which is exactly right, it's a varying degrees of mobile execution. So anything from in app installs to PDFs to code transfers and, and so on and so forth. And, and so I think going back to some of the points that you make is around the fact that mobile as a, as a technology advancement in, let's use ticketing, purchasing, customer data sharing, um, principally is, is, I think, very positive. And there's a lot of value that can be unlocked from it. But, the, but where, where we see it slightly more um, uh, differently is this concept of you know, security, or really, which is that it's just sort of a cloak for control. And, and in particular, you see music is, is one of those where they, you know, as Mike had pointed out, promoters will be pushing venues and others to lock the ticket down and remove transferability to the extent that they can. We just don't see that as being very helpful for the customer experience. And in fact, it creates more friction and more frustration for the customer. We think a sort of 
freedom and open um, solution is a, is a much better approach to that. So if you look at what we've done in the United States with StubHub is that, that we have partnerships with leagues such as Major League Baseball and the NFL. And that technology, that mobile technology is leveraged to unlock the distribution so that teams can use StubHub in a lot of different ways, not only just to do resale, but also to do primary distribution. And the mobile technology allows for a very frictionless experience, advancing the customer opportunity for that event organizer a lot further than what had traditionally been done, maybe just through a season ticket or through a traditional sale with a paper ticket. And so I see it, at least for us and some of the things that we've seen in the United States, it is much more advanced and it's much more um, leveraged in a way that's meant to provide additional value and experience that's a benefit for customers in which we think, you know, from, from an industry standpoint for the, for the event organizer, let's say the NFL or major league baseball utilization of the ticket, you know, being it, making sure that the seat is full and getting those per caps that Mike pointed out is really, really important and making sure that if someone can't make it to an event, mobile ticketing allows for sale up to the event itself, you know, maybe even during the game. And so that, that kind of freedom to be able to quickly move um, a, a ticket off of that one one code onto another and create a new ticket can ultimately fill a seat, which could be a new fan or a new customer that would be willing to spend a bit more at the ballpark or the stadium that wouldn't have been there before, which is really, really important revenue. So um, in the UK for VUGOGO, uh, the numbers are closer to 50%. So it's not been completely adopted across the uh, the entire ecosystem yet, but it's obviously been increasing a tremendous amount. So from from our standpoint, we see a tremendous amount of value from it as long as it's not used for anti-competitive or restrictive kind of approach because it could be used not necessarily in the best interest of the customer or the fan. When you say they close the ticket down, what do you mean by that, just to clarify? Yeah, sure. So they'll sometimes, not all, but some event organizers sometimes will use the term security uh, or fraud as a um, uh, as a term in order to restrict the transfer of a ticket. So in our position, both at VUGOGO and StubHub, it is our belief that as soon as a customer purchases a ticket, uh, they have the freedom to do with it what they would like. Um, the technology on mobile technology allows for uh, a frictionless experience, meaning that if I buy that ticket and we wanted to transfer it to a friend or to to you know someone I bought a ticket for, or they're just looking to resell it, that ability to transfer that ticket over a system that... Um, you know, you can validate the ticket, you can authenticate a ticket, and you ultimately get all the customer information. We see that as very, very positive. If you use it to restrict that transferability, i.e. lock the ticket or not allow someone to transfer it or put in rotating barcodes with the concept that security is the reason, which we don't we don't believe is the case. The reality is, is that that creates a more of a friction, um, uh, you know, experience it frustrates customers. Uh, it, it, it can create a lot of headache for the box office and others. Uh, and we just don't necessarily see that as a benefit to, to the event organizer and certainly not to the customer. So the, the argument against that, so the, the argument against Viagogo and StubHub is that you are enabling ticket touts. Is that right? So I'm just getting, I'm just trying to get to the, the argument for closing a ticket down would be to, to reduce ticket fraud but you're saying it's less of an issue than the rights holders are making out. It's not about ticket fraud. It's about the controlling of the ticket itself and where the, where the money is flowing to. And I think, I think we're very, very open-minded when it comes to partnerships and it comes to engaging with uh, event organizers. In fact, we've, you know, we have 
you know, hundreds of millions of dollars invested in, in, in partnerships all over the world. And those relationships are, are about developing a better experience with, with um, what we can do to help utilization for the uh, for a season ticket holder, making sure that their tickets are ultimately used, increasing the customer um, uh, opportunities so an event organizer can reach more customers. We're all over the world. We operate you know, with 40 plus languages and have all these different payment methods and, and different currencies and so on and so forth. So we can be used as a distribution channel uh, as well. And, and, and then um, in addition to that, that you want to make sure that you have the opportunity for people to transfer and and um, and, and and move their tickets around freely as as they so choose. Um, ultimately, our position is we think that's a better customer experience, and and it's been proven out that that's been the case for for many many years. And and you know how we can work directly with sports teams, in particular other other event organizers. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity in, in um, sharing customer information and, and, you know, there's obviously revenue share opportunities off of that technology. There's a, there's a, a better way to, uh, to approach that, you know, concern around what, which I appreciate and from time to time it has an intent, but sometimes the intent overextends itself and creates a pretty negative experience for, for fans. Mike, do you agree with that? Yeah, I've definitely seen examples of, of, of exactly that. I think we need to be careful not to blur um, some of the functionality, I guess, of mobile ticketing together into in, into one piece. So, uh, you know, from a UK example, there's a there's a summertime series of concerts on the go at the moment. Uh, and if you bought tickets for that and then you couldn't go, there was no resale, no reshare, uh, no ability to do that. So that's exactly the point there. But, you know, if you bought a ticket and then couldn't make it, for whatever reason, uh, that ticket went went wasted, um, and, and no no way to get back. And obviously, that for a consumer is massively frustrating. Uh, whereas the things around sort of rotating barcodes and items like that are more in the you know, what I would call like genuine fraud uh, of someone has taken a photo of a ticket as it would have been in the old day, or taken a screenshot of a digital ticket, and then they're using that to portray fake tickets and and sell those on the market. So I think there's there's a very different piece between genuine secondary markets where fans are able to either share via a closed loop, you know, members orientated system at a football club, for example, or into, into platforms uh, like the Agogo or StubHub, uh, and people who are genuinely just looking to take that information um, and take that design, I guess, of the ticket so as to create fraudulent tickets and, uh, and ultimately rip people off. Uh, and so there's, there's two very different parts to that uh, kind of functionality or equation. Um, but ultimately, yeah, I, I see, the, see the benefits of it of, of being that, that sort of addressable audience element um, from a sharing point of view. And that's, that's the main reason that the rights holders are introducing it uh, at the moment. And when I look at people like uh, Edgebaston Stadium, who just had the India Test match last year, that sold out before Christmas for the first time ever. So much earlier sales cycle, money in the bank at an earlier point in time. And that came off of the fact that we introduced digital ticketing at Edgebaston last year for the New Zealand Test match. Uh, partly mandated by the event research program and um, and needing to get COVID forms signed and, and, and all of that. Uh, all of that's good fun, um, but that grew their addressable audience by 46,000 people over 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 four and a half days, um, at which point you've then got a, a better understanding of the audience. You've got more people interested in the in the types of tickets that you've got to sell moving forwards and ultimately works as a marketing benefit, but the benefit for the fan being easier access to an event post-COVID. So the, you, you say there about the blurring is interesting point. So the, are we conflating? So when the debate, so for example, the two obvious examples recently, it was the Champions League final and the Euro 2020 final last year, where ticketing was central to the, the conversation, it suddenly became this issue. And what you're saying is actually the form of ticket 
is taking too much of the blame. It's a good, and, and Mike, he, he says it exactly right. The definition of a mobile ticket is it, it is critical, and and I think the the principles of it as as of the benefits are pretty fundamentally clear. And if you look at the opportunities that come from mobile ticketing from the the from the purchase itself, the ease of use, that knowing that the ticket will be digitally transferred. There's other small issues with it, such as, do you have a smartphone? Can you, do you have an internet connection? Do you have other types of things that, that, you know, I think are all solvable technically, but I think the reality is, is that when it comes to a, a genuine fraud, you know, genuine people that are looking to take advantage of customers, uh, you know, our business, obviously we believe we mitigate that entirely primarily by the fact that we don't, uh, pay anybody until after the event, event, as well as making sure that we are vetting sellers and, and follow a lot of different protocols and things of that nature. So fraud as a as a sort of a counterfeiting concept, mobile ticketing can help in some expense, but he's exactly right. You can take you know screenshots, you can do other types of things that can kind of maneuver around that, especially if the customer is not entirely educated on you know how these things work. For instance, I would imagine a lot of customers don't even understand what rotating barcodes even mean. And so if a customer, if, if someone was to use, let's say a rogue website that doesn't have any guarantees like the Egogo or maybe something off of Facebook or, or, or even off the street for that matter, and then they just sent the ticket with a screenshot and or just uh, sending it across text or something like that, a customer wouldn't know any different because actually it's slightly easier to counterfeit in that instance as opposed to a paper ticket. And so... That I think there's a big there's a big customer education piece that we're still still going to work through. But then when it comes to the other bits, if you use Champions League examples, um, which which is really interesting, is that th- that you know there's a scapegoat. You know, it's almost like it, it's like a blame game at that point to say, oh, the ticketing system did something wrong, or the ticketing system broke, or you know, there's resale issues. Or, and and I think we're finding out in France that wasn't the case. Um, and so I think it's an interesting argument. And I, I would create a separation between the pure, you know, counterfeit problem. And I think there's a lot of benefit for mobile. And then there's the in our, our, our sense of like, making sure that it's not, it's not blurred, so that all of a sudden, it becomes a solution for all of the world's problems in ticketing, which is, is just cer- certainly not going to be the case. And I think look, if you take those two examples, there, hugely different problems neither of which were actually related to ticketing. Um, so if you take the Euro final, um, they, they were using yep. Tix and Go by Secutix, a blockchain mobile ticketing platform for fulfillment for that. Uh, you only got to see the ticket once you passed the perimeter uh, where you had your, you know, a two-phase entry process. You had one scan that basically revealed your ticket on the phone and a second scan which was scanning the actual ticket that had now appeared on your phone. So there was no chance of fraud, there was no chance of fake tickets uh, necessarily being prepared. What you had there was 20,000 people on Wembley Way, all of whom wanted to go to a game, some of which decided that not having a ticket wasn't a barrier to entry. Uh, and therefore you end up with a stewarding problem and a policing problem, not a ticketing problem. You, you can only have, you can almost by default only have a ticketing problem if the people have got a ticket, right? So uh, there's, there's sort of problem one. When you take the Champions League final, uh, and I won't, I won't dive too much into the details of the most recent one, but I uh, I was at the same stadium, Stade de France, uh, in uh, 2006 with Arsenal uh, for the Champions League final, and exactly the same thing happened. Uh, almost, almost identical in every way. As I saw the reports start to come in uh, on that on that Saturday evening, kickoff being delayed, and fans having problems, and uh, you know, overhanded policing tactics, and, and all of these sorts of problems. It was exactly the same as it was 16 odd years prior. 
Uh, and so how many Liverpool fans got in with genuine tickets? Yeah. Most of them. Uh, how many people got left outside with genuine tickets? Some of them. How many people got in with fraudulent tickets or jumped in the fence? A fair amount. Uh, any of that to do with ticketing fulfillment or the genuine nature of the ticket? Not, not hugely. Uh, so, you know, I, I would echo the point earlier on from, you know, the security piece. Sometimes that can be a, an element of a, you know, element of a myth or, or a bit of a red herring to say, hey, digital ticketing is going to solve all your security issues because if you're not well planned, prepared as a ground, you know, from a UK point of view against Sports Ground Safety Authority, got the green guide and, and regulations, you, you're not going to solve the ultimate barrier of people trying to come in to sports events they're not, or, or music events they're not entitled to be at. And that was the fundamental problem that, should, that both of those events shared. A lot of this talks to the sort of relationship between the tech and where the customer is in their acceptability, their understanding of it, their education of it. This is before we get to blockchain. And my worry about blockchain is that I'm just about getting my head around mobile ticketing. <laughs> and now you lot are going to go off and start talking about blockchain and I'm going to be another five at least five years behind you and you know it's it's a bit like skiing you know i'm always i'm a crap skier i haven't been for 25 years but when i i'm, I'm knackered every time i turn up with the rest of the group and they buggered off again <laughs> so just reassure me about this because this is the worry about and this is obviously the broader point about sport and tech but what's causing that and it, the other bit to it is just the fragmentation of the experience i go to one stadium it's different from another one i go to spurs ground it's different from you know going to to a cricket match and that's that's a problem because i've got it's like the old app problem i've got 100 apps on my phone and and, you know i use them once every now and then so reassure me about this (laughs) i would i would i'll start on this one which is that to, to your point um you know that that we we obviously deal directly with customers every single day, and and you know are, are doing a significant amount of volume all over the world, and and the world of ticketing is is it's still confusing, and and with the advances such as mobile ticketing, and ultimately where I see most of this probably ends up on the blockchain, I would imagine, although there's a lot of different variations of how that will be executed. The reality is is that as a business that is in the um, on the front line, speaking to customers, we see that we see the confusion all the time. And the mobile ticketing piece can create a lot of confusion. And to your point, every experience is slightly different. It's still a very fragmented market. And and I think the reality is, is that what we're encouraged by, at least in starting to see trends for and we're, we're advocates for, is the cooperation amongst all of the um, rights holders and, and distribution um, businesses such as ourselves, which is that we can create hopefully a linked system that allows for customers to have confidence in purchasing tickets from multiple platforms, be it a traditional ticketing company like Ticketmaster or Ticket Marketplace like the Ugogo or StubHub, assuming that the technology that embeds it all below it is is interconnected, which is where mobile and possibly blockchain can can play a role. Because if you look at travel and you look at some of the other industries where they've shifted into this direction, there's a lot less confusion about the fulfillment of an airline ticket or a hotel. And there's a lot more confusion about what happens with a live entertainment ticket. Where do I go? Where is the on sale? Do I have to be a member? Do I have not to be a member? And there's all valid reasons for why the distribution and the sales are happening the way that they have. 
But at the, at the end of the day, if we can just kind of look about what's ultimately better for the customer experience, not only that, but also the event organizer filling the seat, getting the data, getting a cut of the revenue, making sure that they're getting their per caps and everything else. I think it, 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 I'm hopeful that we trend into a more linked system and we, we see it in the United States already. We, like I said, we, we've done it with Major League Baseball. We've done it with the NFL. We're seeing more and more event organizers wanting to access more customers through more, multiple channels as opposed to just having one system in place. And so I'm hopeful. I don't know how quickly that will, that will change over time. It's obviously the, the adoption rate is different in different countries and so on and so forth. But, um, I don't think to me, and, and Mike might have a different view, you, only, you don't need to really understand blockchain as long as the customer experience is a positive one. And the blockchain can be used for all the benefits that the, the technology provides, um, which we don't necessarily have to educate the customer on. It's more about making sure that the quality of the uh, buying experience and you know them getting into the event and being and having a great experience is the single most important thing in live entertainment the last thing you want to do is create friction or confusion or frustration because it disincentivizes customers from coming back so whether it's a primary ticket a secondary ticket a tertiary ticket most of the time customers don't really care they just want a really good experience and they want to enjoy the live emotion you know they're they're in the event they they feel the joy they feel the passion that's what everyone's trying to solve for and and i think as long as these technologies are service in that purpose then uh we're on a good path so i, I think it's less about the complications associated with the technology the technology companies will know how to deliver that value and, the, and they can explain that to teams or concert promoters or others and and we, again, leverage it the right way for the best intent, which is filling seats, generating great, you know, attendance, um, you know, frictionless experience, getting the customer share, sharing the information, you know, upselling on other other things. I think that's uh, hopefully that's where, where we where we head to. So, Mike, we don't I don't need to be a physics graduate to work out my ticket. No, I was going to say, I absolutely agree with that point. Uh, if, if you have to think about blockchain uh, as a consumer, we've done it wrong. Um, yeah, ultimately that is all happening in the background. Yeah. But when you go, you know, the millions of people who went to the Euros last year wouldn't be thinking about, oh, this this app I've got is basically built on blockchain. Isn't that isn't that wonderful? They'd be thinking, cool, this this ticket is in my app, and I know what's going on. <laughs> Likewise, using a tick serve app at Principality Stadium or or, or Twickenham, uh, you know, for people who go entering into there. So uh, I don't think the the type of technology is the confusion that the consumer will experience. I think there is more to be said as you as you make the point of of the fragmentation within it. Uh, and I think that that primarily comes from my perspective, and Chris, interested in your perspective on it, that uh, ticketing companies used to be transaction companies, uh, and to a large extent still are, because what used to happen is if you walked up to a box office and said, I'll have a ticket, please, they would put in, put in your details, you put your card in the machine, enter your PIN, and then as a result of that, out popped a ticket. And there it was, physically in front of you, handed under the counter, there you go. There's your physical ticket, sir. You can now walk away. You've got your ticket. I don't need to talk to you ever again. And so they're, they're, the customer journey for a ticketing platform stopped at the point of transaction. And what that has done is mean that ticketing companies haven't got the, the, the full answer. They've often got the entry-level answer, as I would call it, which is that traditional e-ticket, PDF, print-at-home style. That's how we fulfill digital now because that, that again, passes it all over to the consumer. We don't have to talk to them because we've just emailed them their ticket. That's all fine. 
you then have the, uh, the the problem that other app providers have come into the market who are, who are looking to fill that gap and are saying, ah, well, we've got a fulfillment arm for you. Uh, and then you've got the uh, generic app vendors, i.e. the the app of a football club or of a stadium saying, hey, we can embed it into ours as a widget. So, you know, in one place you might end up with a, here you go, click, put it in your Apple wallet, it's right here, it's really easy for you, it's all set. You know, so that's the, the transactional old-fashioned way. Other ways it may be, great, you bought a ticket, here's a link to download a ticketing-specific app. And in another way it might be, here's a link to download our stadium app that we would like you to register for. And it's that <laughs> element that is, is, is uncommon across the sporting rights holders and across the landscape. And I think the challenge to build upon Chris's point with that is when we talk about doing things to enhance consumer experience, that means very different things in very different places. Uh, and that means different things because of budgets, that means different things because of capacity, because of the number of events and, and a whole heap of other factors that go around the side of that. And hence, you, you're naturally going to have an element of fragmentation in that space because what everyone's idea of utopian mobile ticketing is different on the stadium and rights holder side of the fence. Mike, I just wondered, Chris was quite endearingly confident and bullish about the ability of the sports industry to work together to solve these issues. I'm just, I'm much less confident than he is. <laughs> I would, I would, let me just, I'll, I'll add to that, which I would, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with that premise. Uh, but I would say to put our business in context of where we would see it to go is that we will be and further will be doing this outside of the United States, encouraging and, and making investments to move it into this direction. To, to, to Mike's point, every team, every event organizer has a slightly different point of view about how to approach it. And it's creating more and more confusion. And we see ourselves as hopefully moving to a position where we can help aggregate more of this into a sort of better experience for the customer. And, and, and I think that not as if that you can't solve for a lot of these ideations that, that the teams and event organizers have, because I think the, the concept of simplifying, you know, freedom of choice and maximum distribution is a principle that everyone should ultimately could get behind. And, and sometimes that takes in you know a third party business that's willing to make investments and do other types of things on the technology side to assist and 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 I believe that that's I've seen shreds of it do I think it's going to be you know uh, sort of a one stop shop for everybody in the next few years <laughs> that remains to be seen but it's complicated and I think I think the point is is that um it's doable and and again I I hate to use the United States as an example but we certainly have seen some positive trends there that we would look to hope to replicate in places like the UK. I mean, I'm much more in your camp, Richard. Uh, so StubHub, is, you're the sort of, the, the, StubHub <laughs> is the white knight of this whole thing. You're going to, we're going to do what we you're can. You're going to be the hero. We, we're, we're here in service of the customer. So we're going to do what we can to encourage it. Mike, can you see the problem in terms of, is there an easy solution or is it, is it going to be really difficult? Yeah, look, I, I think, the, the challenge is, is there is three, three different pots of people in the mix. There is a ticketing vendor and who they want to integrate with to allow fulfillment. So that might be Ticketmaster, Secutix, you know, um, a, a whole variety with SROs and uh, SeatGeeks and, uh, and et cetera, sort of the predominant players in the market. Then you've got the disparity of rights holders. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I often use the example, uh, if you take the championship uh, football, EFL championship over here last year, uh, Side tangent, the, the highest value front of shirt sponsor was four and a half million and the lowest was 200K. 
so when you're looking for a commonality of experience between home and away games in the championship for mobile ticketing, you're going you're gonna to be dealing with the array of budgets and, and maturity levels and, uh, and where people are going and where people are looking. And then you've got a digital uh, ticketing, mobile ticketing ecosystem of vendors uh, who have all built platforms to sell with very different mechanisms. Now, there's the, the two... Uh, the two guys with market share in that regard as, as, as mobile ticketing apps in the UK, one of them uses email address as a unique identifier, the other one uses mobile number. Uh, so as you as you start, there's the confusion for the consumer. Uh, if you're going to Twickenham, you need a mobile number. If you're going to Wembley, you need an email address. Um, you know, those are two sort of national stadiums for the two, two, two of the larger sports. Are those two vendors going to come together and say, hey, yeah, we'll rebuild all of our architecture to find a common language that's going to help some of the consumers I, I, I doubt it uh, as a piece. I think what we really need to, to focus on as an industry, and it comes back to my very original point, I think, is that what is mobile ticketing? Can we use common terminology uh, as to what people are expecting and how we're communicating with our, with our fans, with our customers, to demystify some of the problems that people have? Because when people say digital ticket, as I say, in some pieces that means, yeah, I've got my digital ticket, I've got my PDF, and other places, it's like, yeah, I've downloaded it to my Apple wallet. What are you talking about? Uh, and so if we can just have some unification there, that will, that will help. But I, I, I witnessed a huge number firsthand, a huge number of ticketing issues last, last, start of last season as people went into that journey into digital. Uh, and if I take one of our arena clients, there were four ways in uh, from a digital ticketing perspective. There was a barcode, print at home. Uh, so you could have printed that bit of paper and brought a barcode with you. You could have scanned that barcode off your phone you could have had an NFC ticket to tap and go, or you could have downloaded a barcode into your Apple wallet. So people are turning up and I'm watching people get barcodes and rub them over an NFC reader. I'm getting people with NFC tickets, putting their phone into a turnstile and going, why isn't it working? And the reason for that was they just called it digital tickets. If you have a digital ticket, do this. But they hadn't realized the subtlety underneath was there are actually four very distinct types with four very distinct behaviors. Hence, queues around the block, People missing kickoff, unhappy fans, not a frictionless experience, problems. Uh, and I would say, yeah, 90% of the cases where digital ticketing had an issue in the in the context of the start of the last sports seasons uh, in 21-22 here, it was communication to the fan that was the issue more so than the technology. And presumably, COVID, the cliche was that accelerated people's rush to digital, and that just was more of a car crash rather than a, a sensible approach to moving in this direction yeah i, I think it, it definitely sped things up um but the the speeding up of the consumer adoption and the rate of maturity at the rights holder or the venue did not keep pace with each other uh, and, and you know you take the football challenge you, you were being told uh, i remember having a briefing uh, a couple of weeks before christmas saying hey you're gonna have a pilot event in three weeks time go uh and, and you know sort of off you go uh, so whilst the consumers <laughs> Uh, are used to the fact that you know Tesco have now gone digital for their club card and you get more reward points if you use their app rather than sort of swipe a card or swipe a barcode and that's what the consumers were experiencing buying groceries week in week out and they were getting used to it and you know uh, people using FaceTime to keep in contact with relatives through lockdown and friends and family and then items like that they were getting more digitally mature uh, the rights holder however had 80% of their staff furlough uh, not getting more mature and then suddenly with three weeks notice had to turn an event around and went ah right Digital ticketing, we need to digital ticketing. Right, let's just throw something out there. Uh, and hence confusion, lack of comms, poor technology choices on, on the vast majority of, uh, of occasions where it was lastminute.com. I think now, as we sort of sit in this kind of closed season of the, 
uh, you know, between 21, 22 and 22, 23, the rights holders are probably caught up where the consumers have actually got themselves to. Uh, and that marrying itself back up will be, uh, will be useful for the start of next season. OK, right. I've got one more question, which is about pricing and the face value of a, of a ticket. Let's talk about dynamic pricing. What, how does, what role does that play, Chris? Well, StubHub and Viagogo have been a dynamically priced market since its inception. Um, you know, it's our belief that, um, that there is the freedom for the market, you know, to effectively settle on what the appropriate price is for both the buyer and the seller. And I think that's been that's been happening for thousands of years around live events. It's, it's nothing that we've, we've done anything different. We don't, you know, buy and sell tickets. We don't get involved in the pricing. We don't do that. We just let the market determine that. And I think from, from our perspective, and I've seen this a, a long time and it's obviously quite a, you know, there's quite a, a discussion around this, which is that um, you can never outstrip the demand for something. So, you, you know, if you have the champions league final and there's a limited universe of, of tickets to sell and there's, um, a significant amount of demand for that particular event, such as Liverpool in this last one, it's not something you can remove from the equation. So it's inevitable that prices are going to, are going to change. And it's inevitable that, that there's going to be uh, a market for that. Um, we believe a market should be on a regulated website like ours, which has got guarantees and security and controls. Um, but needless to say, that customer, that, that demand is going to source that ticket one way or another uh, because the value of that is subjective. So, some people will value um, a concert for their favorite artists versus others, and others will, will value it a lot less. And so there is a inherent dynamic pricing that happens regardless of what the event organizer says. It's, it's ultimately their right to decide on how they're going to initially price the ticket. Uh, there's a lot of considerations that event organizers have to um, go through in order to value that ticket. So how much do they pay the artist up front? What is my payroll for teams? How much is my venue cost? I mean, there's just a number of things that are just economics that they've got to consider. And then there's also the considerations around the risk, you know, the risk that that teams take and promoters take in order to, you know, meaningful receive enough cash back in a period of time in order for them to manage their own operations. And so um, these are things that I don't think the traditional customer will understand, nor do they have to. I think the point is, though, is that in the United States, and we're seeing it in the UK, dynamic pricing is becoming more common. Um, uh, you see it with uh, a number of different, like, tagged sort of terms um, that that they'll call it something. But effectively, it's the same thing, which is that it just shifts based off of market pricing. Uh, in our opinion, face value is slightly irrelevant to some extent, but it, there is a there is a marker um, that, that people will set, um, and a marker that is set based off of these other factors that I just explained. But at that point in time, as soon as somebody has purchased that ticket in the initial quote unquote, you know, on sale or offering, then the market kind of dictates from there. Um, if you use Wimbledon as an example, we, we saw prices skyrocket for the semifinal, uh, and then drop immediately when the doll pulled out. And that's part of the market. And that's part of how things will adjust. And, and again, it just depends on a number of different factors. Is it, you know, you're going to a festival? Is it going to rain? Is it, does a certain artist not play? Does somebody pull out? So we feel like that kind of that flexibility and the freedom of the pricing to shift and do what it wants and allow buyers and sellers to kind of come together in a fashion that, that um, ultimately they get into an, sort of effectively an agreement. 
and 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 transact over a secure platform like ours, we think is probably where most of this heads. You know, I, I don't. I I think it's important that um, when you can see the primary market offering it because it is a it's it's a solution that they that they feel like that the event or the the market um, ultimately needs. And I, we wouldn't we wouldn't discredit it. We think it's it's just a natural projection of where things go. Is there not? I mean that that's a very free market approach to it. And I'm just wondering if there is in my mind whether there's a cultural difference between the market in the states compared to Europe and the UK. Yeah. And there's a there's a, a question in my mind in terms of the implications of just letting the market run on these events in terms of just the the, the type of people who can get in and can afford to get in. Yeah. But also whether or not there is when you get to a club level that protecting fans or you know certain groups there has to be something or someone who is on the side of the fan here because all the incentive you say if you just let the free market run we know what will happen yeah look, i think uh, ticketing and pricing in the uk is just fundamentally more emotive than it is in other places uh, i remember having a conversation with an american uh, firm uh, in the ticketing space in 2016, as we were just about to move West Ham into the uh, into the London Stadium, and they were just sort of looking at it, going, "Hey, big uplifting capacity, we can help you sell. We could we could be a ticket agent for you. We could do X, Y, and Z for you." And I'm sort of saying, "Well, we've got sort of 20, 23, 24 events a year. Uh, we've got a 62,000 capacity stadium as it was at the time, and we've got 52,000 season ticket holders." So kind of quite what tickets you think you're going to be able to sell for me or, or leverage with that, I'm, I'm, kind, of, I'm kind of lost uh, as an element. And, and I think the big difference over here is you have his, history, fundamentally. Uh, the, the, the teams are much older. They come with a lot more legacy. They come with handed down from generation to generation in families. They come with a deep and, and loyal kind of passionate support. And that is not to, to say that the US does not have those, those qualities in it. But when you're popping up a new MLS franchise, uh, and starting from scratch, what you can do with tickets and pricing uh, compared to uh, you know, a football club that's been going since the 1800s is, is, is fundamentally different, uh, I, I would say, in, in, how you, in how you approach that. And as you say, free market economy over here, the challenge here is scarcity. There are simply not enough games. Now, uh, let's not get too far into European Super Leagues or, uh, or, or, or other ways of creating new inventory. But if you look at the, uh, you know, the, the baseball side in, in America is the complete opposite. There's almost too many fixtures uh, and there are whole sort of social channels dedicated to empty seats galore uh, as, as tag phrases say, well, this is the 150th game they're playing this year. Uh, nobody wants to come to the 150th game of the year. When you've got 19 Premier League home games uh, over that same period, you have scarcity and hence if you have free market and sellouts, prices will go up and all the points that Chris made are correct. You know, the market will decide and naturally that will gravitate itself towards the top end of the market. Uh, and, and sort of the haves will, will take tickets from the haves nots, as it were. But the uh, the demographic of sport and the social economic demographic of customer fan bases is, is very different here. Uh, and hence you have campaigns like the, the capital away ticket prices and uh, and a variety of others. I think it's just fundamentally about the loyalty that's generated through the the, you know, the history, historic nature of the uh, of the clubs, and then the, the scarcity problem, which you don't suffer from in in the US. Yeah, I'll, I'll just, if I have the opportunity just to respond, which I, I've seen it and I've seen it specifically in the UK and seen it in other markets. And you're 100% right that the, the cultural differences play play a role. And I, and I think it's important to determine and define dynamic pricing is not just going up, but can also go down. And I think 
the reality is, is that we see that quite a lot. That's number one. And number two is that the concept of, of every event it has a different dynamic and something that you have to consider. So if you use the fans in particular in the UK football um, sector, there is a uh, an appropriate uh, strategy, we think, is to maintain that sort of loyalty and commitment, which means, though, that you're going to have to figure out other ways of uh, maintaining that and or maximizing in other areas. So corporate seats might be a good example or how sponsorship might be able to do it, level it. So the, the, the sort of consistent maybe theme that we see in the United States might be universities. Um, there's a, a lot more sort of loyal fan base. And so Duke University is a good example where they've got uh, the student section that's right on the basketball court and it's got all the singing and the dancing and all the, 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 the kind of uh, emotion that you would like to see. What supplements that are basically big donors, um, you know, big, big donors that come to the university and are willing to make, you know, really hefty, um, you know, donations to the university in order to maintain um, that, knowing that that's not necessarily a moneymaker. And I see that similarly with with uh, UK football and others. So uh, I would say that the dynamic pricing, again, it's, it, it shouldn't be categorized exclusively about just profiteering and or just raising prices uh, without any any consideration. If you're... If you're smart and you're intelligent, you would have to have a rational strategy for the whole thing. And the whole thing has to be thoughtful. And so if you're just pricing, you know, certain fan classes out that have been there and have been loyal for a long time, well, that obviously is not a very good, um, uh, you know, long-term point of view for the, uh, for, for what it's like in the atmosphere of the stadium. People pay a lot of money to get into the atmosphere. If you lose the atmosphere, then all of a sudden you've lost the entire value that you've created, not to mention you're watching the best footballers in the world. So it's totally different. Every country is different. There's so many different you know considerations. Uh, and I think it's just a question of making sure that you've got an appropriate uh, approach, to, approach to the whole thing. And so again, looking at, quote unquote, the definition of dynamic pricing, like that's why I see we see 40, 50% of our tickets on our website go below the, the notional face value in the site because you just don't really know what happens. Um, and, and, and there's a there's an approach to doing that at the on sale through mobile ticketing, through all the types of things that uh, that can help uh, in service of the of the event organizer as well as the fan. Okay, well, listen, I'm uh, enormously grateful for your time. I really enjoyed that conversation. It went in lots of different directions. What I like about this bit of the the jungle is that actually it's quite sort of revealing or quite emblematic about much broader issues there's so many bits in it in terms of both the psychology of fans and fan behavior but also the tech and and that whole conversation so thanks very much for your time really appreciate it mike chris was really enjoyable yeah pleasure thanks for having me okay right 